0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Brie Fallon and with me is
1: Dave McConaughey, fresh amid the election here in the United States where we're still anxiously waiting for all the votes to be counted. I have bitten all my nails. I have chewed on my lip. I have drunk all the coffee to stay awake to hear the results, but they're still not in. And so the Religious Studies podcasts just continue marching on as they do when you have a global international podcast. Isn't that right, pre
0: That is right. And I must say, I am very thankful for your insight, Dave, as somebody on the ground there so that I have a little bit more information than just what I am getting from the news in Australia here. So thank you very much for that. And speaking of things that we should be thankful for, we have a wonderful Bit of a theory-heavy episode coming up for you this week. What do we have, Dave?
1: Yeah, we have an episode uh, by David G. Robertson called Rhizomes, Assemblages, and Religious Change with Paul Francois Tremlett. Take it away.
2: I'm David Robertson, and... Today I am very pleased to be joined by Paul-Francois Tremlett, my colleague and until recently boss at the university. But we're not here to talk about my employment record today, instead we're going to be talking about Paul's new book, Towards a New Theory of Religious and Social Change, Sovereignties and Disruptions, which is published by Bloomsbury. So welcome back to the Religious Studies Project, Paul.
3: Very pleased to be here, David. Very pleased indeed.
2: And we're very, very pleased to have you. Um, and in some ways, I think this interview will follow on quite nicely from your first one, talking about Levi-Struis and an engagement with cutting edge and classic uh, social sociological um, theories of religion, society and change. Um, in fact, that might be a good place to start the interview um this book this new book really jumps off um a discussion on some patterns of models of religious change if that makes sense some some different tr- traditions and lineages of models of social change um in the study of religion that we're probably all pretty familiar with but maybe you could you could set out these different traditions and some of the problems with them
3: yeah, uh love to. So um I was interested in change. We live in a in a rapidly changing world and uh, a lot of things going on out there that are quite disturbing and and let's face it terrifying. Um so change is something we're always trying to understand and I was also interested of course in not just in change um on the global scale but social change in in the UK, and then more in discipline specific, how we think about change in religious studies and the kind of theories that we, we have been working with. And, you know, alongside that, of course, is the tendency to represent religions themselves as rather static, monolithic entities, which are, as it were, immune to change. So the question of change really became quite important to me. And I, I was quite dissatisfied with the theories of change that we have. We have the secularization theory uh, thesis, which is um, a unilinear t- sort of uh, t- teleological uh, theory of progress, um, whereby religion declines as... Uh, scientific rationalism becomes in, uh, more pervasive in uh, modernizing societies and we have the live religion thesis which is a very different way of thinking about change. Um, it, it focuses very much on the way people create uh, religious uh, or religious assemblages or, or religious, um, new forms of religious practice out of the sort of bric-a-brac of, of religion and culture as they find it in their in their ordinary lives. Um, so secularization thesis is a very sort of macro theory of change, and there are many, many critiques, which we don't need to go over here. But, uh, and then there's the live religion thesis, which is a very sort of micro-ethnographic theory of, of, of religious and cultural assembly and change, um, which is very popular in the discipline at the moment but again i felt that there was room to try and think somewhat differently about change and, and the what i wanted to do was to do something uh, a little bit different i wanted to be less anthropocentric i wanted to decenter um, i wanted to decenter the human subject i wanted to think about religion without recourse to meaning without recourse to belief without recourse to rationality. And I wanted to foreground other entities so that um, the account of change that um, would emerge would be one in which humans and a range of other actors uh, would would be operating, as it were, on a flat ontological plane in which they're all... Um, Having a role in 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 how in how religious religions and societies change together um you know in a very just a very simple example that we're all extremely familiar with um, you cannot think about the reformation or maybe you can think about the Reformation without printing but in, in, I would argue that you should not think about the Reformation without thinking about the role of the technology of printing which revolutionizes um, the transmission uh, of information in Europe in the 16th century, and that has a huge role in uh, in the changes that that we would otherwise pin on Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, and others.
2: So, in a sense, we're moving away from a sort of history of great men, but more than that, it's it's. Uh... It's a moving away from a history of religion in which people are the centre of the story.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to see what it would be like to try. I mean, in a way, the book was an experiment. Can I write an account in which meaning and belief are not really playing much of a role? Um, And so I wanted to focus much more on technologies, cities, mountains, ghosts, these kinds of Entities I wanted to give attention to uh, rather than, as you say, great men, you know, um, great man theory, both in our sort of way we write academic histories of our discipline, but also in the way histories of change are are constructed, play have been given far too much um, agency, let's put it that way.
2: Yeah, and it's, it's not only sort of great men, but it's, it's, uh, little people as well. It's, it's the, um, because the lived religion paradigm kind of flips it around and does it the other way. So we're looking at these, uh, choices being made by, um, you know, previously ignored groups often. It's often sort of, um, uh, groups of women in the periphery and, you know unofficial forms of religion and these kind of ideas but they're all those are all still based in kind of people and their um in some way rational choice right but this model seems to um to completely decenter that into something which is much more about kind of connections and little networks of ideas Am I understanding?
3: You are. Um, I mean, I've got a lot of sympathy for what Lib uh, Lip Religion Thesis is trying to do, because as you say – it's trying to explore often ignored populations or you know elided populations and the kind of religious praxis that they've been uh, been going about in their in, in ordinary life that's been ignored uh, and you know just not written, just not written you know it's not part of the official or orthodox religious. Uh, and social histories uh, that, that, that we're used to. So Live Religion offers a really potent uh, antidote to, to some of that. But at the same time, it, it relies on a notion of the subject that um, is, for me anyway, or at least for this book, too phenomenologically authentic, too heroic, too, and at the same time, too neoliberal, right? Because what neoliberalism is all about, the emphasis is always on that that heroic, authentic subject in a process of continuous reinvention and self-invention. And the live religion thesis is really uh, embedded in that. So part of this was also trying to um, get away from that, and to and the way that I chose to to do to enact that was uh, through starting to read the works of Deleuze and Guattari, um, which. I suppose it was a natural progression for me, given my um, interest in work of Levi Strauss, and uh, which is also, uh, as it were, an anti-humanist uh, approach in many respects. So I wanted to, and I was also discovering a range of other authors, Jane Bennett uh, and her work on her interest in in, in vitalism, for example, uh, Manuel Delanda. Uh, and a range of other authors who I felt were really offering uh, a, a new way of thinking about the role of non-human actors in, in, in religious and, and social lives.
2: I'd, I mean, I'd like to maybe dig a little bit more into, um, you know, Deleuze and Guattari, maybe specifically um, Jane Bennett's not a scholar I was familiar with until I read your book. Um, and, but maybe before we get there, just just before we leave kind of classical theory, um, there is an interesting, uh, there's a couple of interesting engagements, actually. You draw on Durkheim quite a lot, um, which I think is, is fascinating because he's one of, he's the only scholar kind of from that era that I ever, uh, sort of use now and um, but there's also a lot of these scholars are using terminology that i associate with 19th century anthropology mm-hmm. so we're talking about vitalism we're talking about animism we're talking um fetishism uh, there, there's other yeah fetishism um there's a lot of of this terminology coming back What what is this playing with it's it's at once a rejection of of that kind of victorian view but there's a, there's a, a determent as well, if I can use situationist
3: terms. Well, we, we, yes. Okay. Any, any reference to Guy Debord and the situationist is, is gratefully received um, because, well, he was right, wasn't he? <laughs> but, um, but back, back to, back to the subject in question. I think it's really interesting. Uh, I think it's a really interesting uh, turn that's going on. We find, you know, um, I think it was uh, in a book by Apadurai, um, where he was he talked about methodological fetishism, um, um, Guattari talking about animist subjectivity, and and a few other instances where this language, as you say, this language of uh, the 19th century uh, religious studies or anthropology of religion, suddenly finding its way into contemporary theory. Um, and, you know, it's, and, and of course, it's also there in the work of Bruno Latour, who, uh, who says we have to, you know, sociology has to rethink uh, its approach to the non-human. It has to accept a certain, I think his words are a certain dose. Well, they're not his words because he was writing in French, but a certain dose of fetishism. And, um, so, the, so there is this appropriation of that terminology, of that language, as a means to try and understand again where we are. I mean, it's it does it's you know I think it's uh, worth mentioning David Graeber. He's also part of this uh, uh, you know David Graeber, who sadly died recently. He's he's also part of this ex, uh, move to explore what we can get out of. Thinking about objects and, and and thinking and things and and reappraising our relationship with materiality uh, to rethink things like creativity. Um, so yeah, he was also interested in, in concepts like fetishism and wrote about and, and wrote about that in, in, in really interesting ways. Um, so yeah, I think it's an interesting move, and I think it's because there's been uh, I mean, there are various turns and appropriations going on across different disciplines and disciplinary fields, but I think if we wanted to try and capture that or summarize it in some way, it would be that we're decentering ourselves, uh, the human, from the way we understand the world. That doesn't mean we replace a metaphysics of the subject with a metaphysics of something else, but it does mean. Um, we must start to think about uh, other agencies. There was um, there used to be something in the 80s uh, when people were interested in chaos theory. You know, a butterfly uh, wings flutter in South America, and there's some other event happens somewhere else. And that and that was, you know, that that moment where people starting to think about our old understandings of or our Simple understandings of cause and effect are just not sufficient. They're just not satisfactory. We need to we need to put complexity first uh, and understand that causes and effects are multiple, can work in ways that are counterintuitive. You know, they're not always unidirectional effects following causes and and so forth. And you know, we need to really be prepared to make our lives more difficult as we try and theorize processes of change and transformation. So one of the things that, another thing that inspired me in this was Levi Strauss and his work on myth. Levi Strauss places the agency of of myth in the myths themselves and they, they change, they, they, they don't, um, each new version is slightly different from the previous one, and there's this constant process of iterative change. The problem, if you like, with Source's approach is that he's tied to a uh, to a particular sort of um, teleology, which is entropic, so the myths will eventually just disintegrate and fall apart. I think it's important to avoid uh, any teleologies, whether they're imagining progress or decline, and, and to try and think a little bit differently rather than getting enamoured of stories of progress or decline to try and imagine a sort of flat ontology um, in which um, there's that potential for everything to be involved, uh, have agency and be involved in um, how, how things are working out, how things are going to change and transform.
2: It reminds me of Bourdieu. So the idea of the structuring structure I think of all of the sound kind of. I know he's a little later than the classical kind of theorists that we've mostly been talking about, but in his work, you have this idea where the say the let's continue with the idea of the myth from Levi Strauss. The the, the this, this the structure has a certain agency on the agents, but the agents also. Um, Affect the overall structure, so both are shaping each other in a kind of dialectic. Um, now, durkheim probably also has some uh, degree of that kind of teleological uh, um, trajectory in his work, but uh, I think it's it's it, it was something that 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 your book reminded me of, and I don't know if you actually talk about uh, Bourdieu at all.
3: Um, Bourdieu's just, I mean, I know Bourdieu has quite a lot of currency and it's just, it never happened. Me and Bourdieu never clicked. Um, That's not to say I don't recognize (laughs) he's made an important contribution to sociology and, and, you know, uh, uh, of religion as well. But I think, um, I, I. I didn't talk about Durkheim in, in responding to your question, even though you'd sort of centered to him as somebody I should. And Durkheim is a really interesting character. There's there's the person you read about as an undergraduate, maybe sort of, you know, um, day one theory of religion uh, course. And he's often quite conservative there, um, sort of this Sort of positivistic sociology, social facts, and it's all about norms and rules. But there's another Durkheim. Um, there's the Durkheim of the elementary forms, um, the Durkheim of effervescence, where mm. the end, the r- uh, there's a sort of re- there's a sort of release in, in, in the totemic ritual of energy that animates uh, people and things, the totemic objects, and are, uh, and this that's been that's been important to a lot of people uh, uh, who are often unremembered in sociology, like Bataille, for example. That idea uh, of this uh, 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 Durkheim's idea of the sacred. Mobilizing other accounts of the social um, in, in ways that have often, are often we often overlook in religious studies. Um, so Durkheim is, has a more radical angle that's quite interesting, and I got I was quite attracted to that.
2: And for your book, there's a specific interesting um, aspect which is the Durkheim's. Uh theory kind of straddles religion and things that we normally think about as being political or even completely you know like sport and things like that that are that are just aspects of social life, but much more broadly and that's one of the points that you make um in the book is that you know religious change is, is actually an aspect of much larger social dynamics and these um uh, s- uh Broader networks of the social assemblages. Um, I wondered maybe if it's time that we jump into uh, maybe a more specific example, a kind of case study from uh, one of the ones in the book, and and uh, how wh- where these these ideas that we've been exploring how they occurred to you and how they work in practice.
3: Um, so there's a, there's a couple of examples, and I'm, I'm just going to talk about uh, the example from the Philippines, uh, which is really about. Uh, cities so central to Spanish evangelization of the archipelago was the law of the Indies which mandated the construction of towns and cities and the construction of Manila obviously um, across uh, across the country and evangelization would occur from these spaces that would then be linked by an increasingly complex network of roads and and other forms of communication Um, so that that establishment of ecclesiastical and colonial power through city building is you know still evident when you go to filipino towns and cities today except that the plaza which is in front of the church and around which the houses of the most important people were built and where they lived those are no longer the centers of any contemporary filipino towns now the center is somewhere else it's, maybe in the mall or maybe in a new subdivision that's uh, being built or a new gated community, but probably the mall. And that that reflects a series of transformations, not just in uh, the architecture of towns or town planning, but also it reflects a change in the transmission of religion, the transmission and practice of religion. So if we look at, what's very popular today in the Philippines is, is, a group, is a Catholic charismatic group called El Shaddai. And El Shaddai became popular in the 90s uh, and has continued to grow ever since. And the, what, what they've been very good at is using media, radio, television, social media. They built a mega church uh, around 2009 uh, on the outskirts of Manila, Metro Manila, and, um, and so, what El Shaddai do is they have worked. They they, they, they do a number of things by working by broadcasting. The um, the 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 message comes into the home and people heal through the television in their own homes and in their, in their little chapter groups. They also uh, hold mass rallies. Uh, are are. In the, in the in the main part the Luneta near the Luneta Park in Manila and now they also have their uh, new mega church. the point is the, the the center of gravity of El Shaddai is completely different to the center of gravity uh, of the traditional Catholic church the parish church with its local population um, you know very much Uh, grounded in a particular locality, transmission via the priest, is completely blown away by El Shaddai, which is not only connecting people, uh, which is connecting people through all these different forms of media across the archipelago, but also abroad. As as many people know, the main or primary export of the Philippines is Filipinos who work abroad in numerous capacities, nurses, carers, and so on and so forth. So these people are also plugged in to these virtual and online networks of El Shaddai worshippers and followers. So El Shaddai is com- creating a completely different kind of community, uh, and and create and there and thereby creating completely different kind of social and urban spaces. And so, what I do in the book is try and I've, I've given you the beginning and the end, as it were, of the transformation of, of Filipino sort of urban space. What I try and do in one of the chapters in the book is talk about. What I call generative interactivity, where these different spaces uh, are, are interacting with 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 different forces and are and are kaleidoscopically like the, like the turn of a kaleidoscope, changing into new forms uh, on and on, and and so rather than focusing on the leader of El Shaddai or the, the prosperity gospel, or, or these new ideas, or, or, or a theological angle through which to plot religious change from sort of a sort of traditional uh, Catholicism to, to the prosperity gospel. What I'm interested in, in is rather the material uh, forces through which El Shaddai is embedded in a series of other transformations, such as, for example, um New forms of uh, new forms of transport in, in, in the capital, or or uh, the the building of malls, and, and so on and so forth. So it's really about trying to understand change as a, a, a something that's ritmatic, as something that's about us. It's about understanding change a, a, as an assemblage of forces and elements that are always moving, and it's through that process of emotion that new assemblages come into being.
2: And that focus on on constant change is, is really important, I think, and 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 uh, and significant. You give a, an example earlier in the book where you mention um, the growth of of you know how quickly the the Catholic Church declined in in 18th century France, and then this growth, this explosion, almost of new forms of of church. You know, Church of Reason, and all the rest of them and and as you point out they were relatively short-lived but it changed uh, the uh, religious field if you like the social field in France permanently after that uh, and you know that that constant decentralization of any kind of um forward motion narrative or or likewise any you know idea of decline i think it is very uh, it's very powerful
3: yeah, I mean the the, the example from, uh, from from France is, you know, we all know we all we all have a, a know a little bit about 1789 in France and the power of the Catholic Church and what happens after the Revolution are these series of, of little experiments in in other forms of, of religious performance and religious belonging that that in, you know. Uh, from Robespierre uh, uh, um, and the cult of reason to uh, Saint Simon and his religion of Newton, and, and uh, Comte and his religion of humanity. Now, none of these things really take hold, although bizarrely or, or strangely, Comte uh, had quite a big influence in Brazil. Um, his his um, order and progress is actually written into the Brazilian national flag. They, they, they don't. They don't. Um, they don't obtain any sort of significant gravity of themselves, but they do change the gravity of of, of France, uh, and, and and so French society today, and, and French Catholicism, and, and the sort of religious uh, topography of France is is altered as a result of these of these experiments. Let's um,
2: let's wrap up then with. I look at the the three methodological principles that you um, suggest towards the end of the book, um, or methodological procedures rather, um, which are methodological animism and fetishism, assemblages, and change modelled as flows. Um, how might we put these together? Um, and what might an approach to studying religious change look
3: like um, I think I mean you know it's 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 there's a certain sort of um, egotism in, in in trying to say this is how everybody should do things from now on and and, and, and perhaps I, I don't really mean that but what I but what I do think we should be doing in a in is we should be thinking much. We, we should be looking to decenter ourselves from the stories we 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 tell, yeah, in uh, uh in our in our field of of, of research and teaching. Um, not because we're not important, but because there are a whole range of other actants out there that are shaping how we feel, how we do things, and what happens next. And once you started to decenter us and started to think about um, these other actants, once you started to think animistically or fetishistically, then it's almost uh, a natural step to start to imagine assemblages of elements. Gravitating together, forming fields of uh, organizing fields in which uh, life is lived out at multiple scales, and then, and that those assemblages are active and transformative. And once we start to get the, the idea of once we start to get that idea, we can start to imagine. Uh, Change as a constant, rather than as uh, something that's happening um, suddenly or 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 incredibly incrementally. We need to imagine it as something that's always happening, and not get. um, And and there is one caveat to that. Um, I think I say um, objects, plants, things, humans participating across a flat plane of interactions. I mean, there is one caveat to that. The idea of the flat plane of interaction is problematic. It's problematic because, because of course, there isn't perfect symmetry between all these different agencies. Power and politics are at work, and those create asymmetries. And We need to take account of those asymmetries, and we need to understand them, because otherwise uh, and, I, you know, I, I talk about uh, some of this as well. We, we can't understand how the world is gendered, how the world is racialized. How, how, you know, these kinds of very, very important and powerful asymmetries uh, need to be addressed. And I would, you know, one of the critiques of, of a Deleuze approach is that it doesn't uh, it doesn't take sufficient account of these uh, of power. I think one of the things I try and do throughout the book is, is show that it can, uh, and, it, and it does make a useful contribution to that.
2: I was going to ask actually. Um, you do, I, I do remember reading that that aspect about power, but the other the other side of the kind of critical project um, is a focus on language, and I was kind of when I was reading it at the beginning you talked about these different models of social change and there, there wasn't really, well, you didn't mention a sort of, uh, you know, a critical discursive model, perhaps Um, maybe you just didn't think it was relevant and that's fine. But um, how does then questions about, for instance, are we talking about religious change or social change? Um, If, If things are largely made of discourse and of language, then how can they be agents? Maybe this is too big a question. I just want to, I just want to, um, uh, to, to get some idea of your thinking on this. because it seems to me that the idea of religion is itself a kind of assemblage um, growing out of economic and scientific and theological concerns in the mostly in the colonial era and you know and developed later on. Um, and so to talk about change of that in itself is maybe uh, is maybe Problematic, or am I just overcomplicating things here?
3: No, not at all. I, th- I think you're right. I think the term religion has a gravity, and that gravity has been obtained through some of the processes that you're alluding to. Um, and for sure, that gravity compels teaching and research to take certain forms. And, and a lot of what's been happening over the last 20, 30 years. Is is various people, Russell McCutcheon, Talal Assad, um, numerous others um, that ought to be mentioned, and I'm not I'm not going to for reasons of time and space. Are, are you know trying to deflect that gravity to 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 you know move it, shift it, to bring new elements to the constellation, right? So um, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, I suppose what I would say is, well, maybe maybe what you're talking about has been done and, and done in very interesting way by Foucault um, uh, in the archaeology um, because you're absolutely right. Uh, discourse, yeah, yeah. Discourses have power and they have agency for sure.
2: It's Yeah, it's, it's not even necessarily a, a, a criticism. It's just it's where my um, interest in the sort of critical discourse side of things runs into the kind of network thinking of Deleuze and Latour and things like that that is the bit I've yet to get my head around is where the two of those things how they intersect and how they could work together
3: because I I
2: do I do realize the limits of critique and I'm, I'm trying to get past that but that's that's the place where the disjunction is for me.
3: I think that's a really – I think the meeting point of Foucault and Deleuze is is kind of interesting. There's Foucault's forward to uh, capitalism and schizophrenia, and there are, um, I think, in control societies, Deleuze engages with discipline and punish, uh, although it's not a very long piece, uh, but he does engage with it in quite a significant way. But uh, it seemed to me that they spent a lot of time – not really engaging with each other's work or talking past each other to some extent. So maybe that work around discourse and, and this sort of um, anthropocent, you know, um, anti-humanist object-centered Latourian stuff, Deleuzean stuff, maybe that, that how those intersect and how they work together. That's a job that no one's done yet. Maybe um now now i'm probably exposing myself to no i've done it uh from 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 a corner of the room and um, in, in which case i apologize uh, if i've if i'm <laughs> no, revealing no, my really. ignorance somehow if you
2: are, <laughs> not well if you are i am as well so don't worry i mean and, and if you've done that work listener then please do get in touch because <laughs> like i'd to like to speak to you, you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely That's, That'll be the next episode. I mean, we're going to have to wrap up now, Paul. And I mean, obviously we could we could, and probably will talk about this for hours more yet, but um, I think we've done a decent job of outlining where you are. So thank you again. And any, any uh, last words or anything you want to plug or anything else?
3: Yeah, I mean, just thank you very much for having me and um, stay safe, everybody. Wise words.
2: Thanks so much, Paul. Thanks, everybody.
3: If today's
1: episode brought you back to graduate school with its conversations on Foucault and Deleuze and uh, Bataille and Bourdieu, don't be afraid. It's okay. We, we all sometimes need the reminder that the the work of theory really marches on. The conversation that uh, Paul Francois and, and David had today really focuses on the way that Change works, and what level should we understand uh, how change works? Should we look for change uh, at the at the macro level, at the global level, or should we look for change at the micro level? And in many people's opinions, that dichotomy between a kind of macro approach—that's um, uh, a kind of an older theoretical model—or the newer. Uh, on the ground, lived, experienced model that looks uh, at a more micro level. That both of those miss quite a bit about the way in which change operates. And so, I'm really thankful that we can kind of talk about the the asymmetry of power and the way that religious change can be theorized in so many different ways. If you're not familiar with the rhizomatic model, I hope that you learned some new things about this today. I know that I used. Uh, some of my own theory uh, on that with uh, Dersetot and my dissertation. So I was familiar with the rhizomatic approach that uh, Deleuze and Guattari have, uh, have presented. So if that's new to you, great. Welcome. Welcome to the world that we think about that. Uh, Brie, we're going to continue thinking about religious change going forward. There's a lot of changes uh, that are happening um, in in the next episode that's coming up, I know that I spoke uh, about religious change. Can you can you say a little bit about um, the context in Australia that I was uh, that I was investigating in next time's episode?
0: Definitely. Next week, um, Dave spoke to Professor Christina Rocha. She's the former president of the Australian Association for the Study of Religion, and. We've been wanting to get Christina on the project for a really long time because she talks about um, transnational Pentecostal connections between Australia and Brazil and particularly the Brazilian community in Australia. She's actually received an ARC, an Australian Research Council postdoctoral fellowship on this topic. And it's an area that she has a lot of expertise in. So next week, our episode will be you, Dave, with Christina, and it is Global Flows, Local Contexts, Pentecostalism in Australia. So we will see you then. But until then, all that's left to say is thanks
1: Thanks for for listening.
0: listening.
2: The RSP is sponsored by the BASR, NAASR, and the IAHR and is produced by the Religious Studies Project Association, a Scottish charitable incorporated organisation. Find out more at religiousstudiesproject.com Brought to you by editors Brianne Fallon and David McConaughey, and founding editors Chris Cotter, that's me, and David Robertson, that's the other guy. Our features are edited by Rebecca Barrett-Fox and Lauren Osborne, and our Opportunities Digest by Ella Bach. Audio editing by Alex Matthews, podcast transcription by Andy Alexander and Savannah Finver, and social media managed by Ray Radford and Candice Mixon. Don't forget, you can support the project by using our Amazon affiliate links or donating at patreon.com projectrs. And you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, iTunes and other portals. Thanks for listening.